Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Science at the Theater's Dark Secrets, what science tells us about the hidden universe, sponsored by the Friends of Berkeley Lab and co-sponsored by the Lawrence Hall of Science. My name is Jeff Miller, and I'm head of public affairs. Berkeley Lab, of course, is known for its energy research. Tonight, though, we will not be talking about biofuels as we did last month. Instead, we will be discussing all things cosmological, including a different kind of power source called dark energy. Our expert guides for this trip through the universe tonight have not had to travel too far, thankfully. They are Berkeley Lab scientists Alexi Leoto, David Schlegel, and Saul Perlmutter. Uh, together with our moderator, John Fowler, health and science editor at KTVU Channel 2. We are going to try to get you excited about all that we know and all that we don't know about the universe. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, John, the stage is yours. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, it's very gratifying to see so many people here tonight. Uh, this is uh, going to be something I, I think you will remember. I've had the opportunity for the last few minutes to talk with these three distinguished scientists. Uh, they all are brilliant, and they all have wonderful, fun, and engaging things to say. We're very fortunate to be here in Berkeley. The Lawrence Berkeley National Lab has some of the most preeminent scientists in the world. Some of the best minds are sitting to my right. Uh, I want you to, tonight, Put aside your fears of the H1N1 flu. <laughs> Don't worry about health care reform. And for a moment, put mortgage uh, crises on the back burner. Open your minds and be prepared to have your minds stretched. Uh, some would say spaghettified. Uh, this is probably the most remarkable evening you will have had, at least in recent memory, I can guarantee you. And I'd like to start with uh, Dr. Saul Perlmutter on my right, who will begin our journey through the cosmos. So I, I was asked to uh, begin a little bit of an introduction for the few of you who don't already know what we're talking about. I figure you know, most of you by now have you know, become experts in all this field. But for those who aren't, uh, we, I, I thought I'd uh, walk through a little bit of uh, what got us to this particular point in our research uh, today. And uh, I think a little bit why we feel so lucky to be able to work on the topics that, we're, that the three of us and uh, our colleagues are all working on. So I was going to begin by just pointing out that the sorts of questions that we're, that we're working with here are ones that go back to pre-history. I imagine the very first human beings uh, would look up the stars at night and find themselves wondering uh, what sort of world we live in. Does it go on forever? Will it last forever? And it turns out that uh, we didn't really make a huge amount of progress beyond, beyond asking you know, philosophers until just this past century when Einstein gave us some conceptual framework to think about this in his theory of general relativity. And, uh, and he set out a, a way of, uh, of writing down equations that describe the universe. He ended up having a problem, though, when he did that, which is that he could get a universe that would 
contract and he'd get a universe that would expand, but he couldn't get one that would just sit still. And he, as far as he knew, that's, that's the universe that he saw around him and that his astronomer friends told him that we lived in. And so he ended up having to put a, a fudge factor into his equation. He, he, he made it sound good. He used the Greek letter lambda. He called it the cosmological constant. But it was just a, uh, you know, an attempt to make the whole thing work. And, uh, and he um, famously uh, regretted it just you know, a dozen years later when Edwin Hubble went out and discovered that really the universe is expanding. And uh, he, you know, he kicked himself and he said it was his, his greatest blunder having put that in. Um, I've been kidding with people saying that you know, he could have predicted that the universe was, was expanding. He could have been famous, but, but he didn't. <laughs> and so uh, what, what it was that Edwin Hubble was, was seeing when he looked through his telescopes was the, the uh, special features of very distant galaxies. Now, he didn't know they were galaxies at the time. They were these fuzzy, nebulous regions in, in, in distant space, and they, they were called nebula. Um, but he discovered that the ones that were further away were moving faster away from us. And uh, this was the hallmark of an expanding universe. Now, the whole idea of an expanding universe um, is, to me, just a mind-boggling thought. And, uh, and I think that when you work with cosmology, one of the real pleasures of, of it, for, I think, for many of us, um, is the fact that you get to work with completely mind-boggling concepts um, and, uh, and just treat them as if they were day-to-day -day, uh, working, uh, working hypotheses. Um, but I thought that since I'm describing a, and we'll all we'll be talking about a universe that's expanding, I should say a word about what we mean, um, because it's pretty clear what we cannot mean. Um, it cannot be that we're talking about something that's sort of exploding um, you know, from a point out into space. Um, that doesn't make any sense, because the space that it's exploding into would be universe. And so that's not what we mean when we say the universe is expanding. Um, I was trying to come up with a way of capturing this in a somewhat simplified uh, drawing. So this is my rather simplified universe. It's all right, very simple. You're supposed to imagine that these dots here are, are galaxies, um, and, they, uh, and you're supposed to imagine that this is an infinite universe that goes on forever, you know, um, up and across and in, into the board and out towards you. And the only thing about it that's uh, important in, in this particular model is that there's a characteristic distance between every galaxy. And so then when we say that the universe is expanding, um, all we really mean is that in this infinite universe with galaxies spread out throughout the universe, that average distance between the galaxies just gets a a little bit bigger. And that's the entire dramatic effect of an expanding universe. But it's a, it seems like a fairly simple idea, but as soon as you start thinking about a universe that's expanding like that, it starts giving you other ideas that you can now bring to bear on your original question of what's going to happen in the future of the universe, because you start wondering, well, if it's expanding now, is that going to go on forever? And what happens if someday it starts contracting? And you know, will the universe come to an end? Um, and the way that you can, part to, well, you, you can address that kind of question is to go back and look in history to see, well, what has it been doing? Has the expansion been changing in the past? And it turns out that that was something that we could set out to do just, well, now it's 20 years ago, um, taking advantage of a object out there in the universe uh, or objects that are stars that explode. An exploding star. Ah, oh, there it goes. <laughs> And a distant star, when it, when it explodes, is, is a very dramatic event uh, because that one star can be as bright uh, when it, at its brightest um, as the, all of the you know, 10, 100 billion stars in that galaxy in which that one star was found. So that's a pretty dramatic event, and you can use it to see vast distances across the universe. Now, the nice thing about looking back at great distances across the universe is that you can take advantage of the fact that the light is taking time to travel. 
So when you're um, looking very, very far away, you're looking at events that happened very, very far back in time. And since what we wanted to do was study the history of the expansion in order to predict its future, that's very convenient. We get to look at the history uh, um, by looking at things that are far away. Um, now, how far away that is and how far back in time you're looking is kind of interesting to think about because the sun isn't that far away. The light's traveling to us for some eight minutes, so it's, uh, you know, it's really reasonably, reasonably close. Near a star, you know, we orbit around our sun four times. You know, four years go by since the light left that star. But it starts feeling interesting as you start looking at the nearest galaxy of stars because now you're looking at light that left those um, stars in that nearest galaxy some 150,000 years ago. So that's going to be appreciable about the time. That's about the time where here on Earth um, we see the first evidence of, of human culture. Um, artifacts, that's my attempt at human culture. <laughs> um, the nearest grouping of, of galaxies, so the nearest cluster of galaxies, is even further away. Now you're looking about some 65 million years back in time. So light leaving those stars um, left there around the time where here on Earth the dinosaurs were going extinct. And it's even more dramatic um, when you ask, you know, much more dramatic when you ask, how far away can you really see? And some of the most distant stars that explode, these supernovae that we've actually been able to discover and see, you're actually looking back some 10 billion years. Um, into, into the past. And that's you know, some two-thirds of the way back to what we think was the beginning of the universe as, as we know it. So to give you a, a sort of feel for that, I, there's a movie that I... That I oh, modern day uh, nearest star, right? I, there's a movie that I think is light that I like that sort of captures some of the sense of this. It begins with an artist's conception of, what a, of a supernova going off in this distant galaxy, but then it morphs onto actual real data. So there's the supernova right there. Um, real data that was collected with first the Hubble Space Telescope that you see here, and then pulling back, actually, we can turn the lights down a little bit. Well, um, pulling back, you can see that this is morphed onto data from many, many telescopes. And you get a sense that we're looking very, 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 you know, very, very. <laughs> I mean, it just goes on forever. It's very, very, very far, far away. And there's the sense of where you're seeing it in the sky. Um, so these are tremendous distances that you're going to look at, and, uh, and that's, you know, that particular case was a supernova that exploded some 10 billion years ago. Now, that means that you're able to uh, study events that occurred several billion years, well, going from several billion years all the way back to 10 billion years back in time, if you can find a number of different supernova. And that's something that we set out to do um, some, well, now it's 20 years back, and it took a while to develop the... Uh, to technique, um, and you want to take advantage of one other aspect, well, well two aspects of this. One is that these, there's a kind of supernova that you can recognize by its spectrum, um, which is always the same brightness, and so when it, uh, when, if you measure how bright it is at peak, you can tell how far away it is, just like you could tell how far away a candle was, as uh, we call a standard candle, um, as you walked across the room or, or you know, down the block with, with, with a candle. You could tell how far away it was by how bright it looked if you knew how bright they were when held nearby. And so the supernova easily give us that information. They tell us how far away it is, and hence how far back in time you're looking, because you know the speed of light, as I mentioned. Um, they also um, uh, give you one other piece of information, which is uh, you can use the color of the supernova to tell you um, how much the universe has stretched, because the supernova looks blue when it explodes, and that's a short wavelength. And then while the universe stretches, um, the photons travel to us from the very distant universe, and their wavelengths stretch just with the universe. So that means that by the time it reaches us, it looks red. That's called redshift. And exactly how red it looks tells you how much the universe has stretched since the time of that particular supernova explosion. So it turns out that if you can find an, a number of these supernova, and we ended up using some of the largest telescopes in the world to do this over, over a number of years, you can map out for 
each supernova telling you how far back in time it exploded, and you can find out how much the universe has stretched since that time. You do that, let's say, for a supernova two billion years back, four billion years, another one, another supernova six billion years, and you can follow the history of the expansion and, and, and learn. Um, now, it turns out there was a lot of work. You had to um, find these supernova exploding in these very distant uh, galaxies. Um, you're supposed to, each of these little faint blue things is a distant galaxy. Some of these are about four billion years back. And you're looking in all of them to see if you can find one spot that gets bright for supernova explode. And so a lot of the work involves developing the computer software to be able to track that down. And uh, eventually, you, we developed the capabilities of having the supernova point out that one event amidst all the field of galaxies um, where the object looks brighter um, three weeks later than it did three weeks earlier, and the difference is the supernova. And of course, it's helpful to do this in space as well. In, in a, from the Hubble Space Telescope, you get to see just the spot that's a supernova on top of the galaxy. Now, that meant that after, oh, what was supposed to be a three-year project, um, 10 years later, we actually had enough supernova to do this, uh, to do this measurement, and we were ready to look at the plot of the average distance between galaxies as a function of time and see what the fate of the universe could be. And there were just a few options. Uh, one was that the universe was going to be slowing because all the gravity in the universe would slow the expansion, but it would just keep expanding forever. And uh, to give you a visualization of what that looks like, um, this uh, animation here, uh, you're supposed to imagine that you're lying on your back looking up at, this, at the sky, I guess, with, with your telescope, I guess, telescopes for eyes. And you see everything expanding away from each other and expanding, uh, expanding away from you, but it gets slower and slower, but it keeps on expanding forever. So that was option one, um, which would have been uh, interesting if it, if it occurred. And option two was a little bit more dramatic. Um, and uh, that was one where the universe slows to a halt and then collapses in a big crunch. And that universe actually comes to an end. So that, um, once more, you lie in the back and you look up at the stars moving away. And it's you know, peaceful and everything's going away. And then you start noticing that things have turned around and they're starting to come in <laughs> towards you. And at this point, you start getting nervous. <laughs> And then, in fact, this universe really does come to an end. <laughs> so that was a very exciting moment when we thought we would get to put our points on this plot and find out which world we lived in. I thought, you know, what could be better than a measurement uh, where you could find out the fate of the universe and whether the universe is coming to an end. In fact, it was, we were going to find out whether the universe is coming to an end just before the millennium. It was, it was really fun. <laughs> and it turned out we, 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 uh, we put the points in the plot, and the answer turned out to be none of the above. The universe is just taking off. So, you know, if you looked at that plot, at that, at that picture, you know, it's expanding, and then it just goes, you know, whoosh, and everything disappears. And, uh, you know, you have to, I've been telling the funding agencies, you have to do all your astronomy now before, you know, while we still get to see <laughs> the universe. So, this is, this is what led us to where, where we are, where we, we seem to be um, faced with some new component of the universe that we hadn't recognized before. Apparently, the universe is dominated by perhaps a dark energy, um, which would be some energy spread through all of space that we've never identified previously. We still don't know what it would be, and that it could be perhaps powering the expansion of the universe to be speeding up. Um, that's one possibility. Another possibility is maybe even more bizarre. It's possible that Einstein's theory of general relativity is, it needs modification, that it's not a fin finished product, that we're going to have to modify what Einstein tells us about gravity, because that could also explain it. And uh, this has meant that you've you know, not only triggered you know, a huge amount of interest in the you know, popular press, but paper after paper after paper has been appearing on the archives from theorists trying to explain 
the physics of what's going on. Um, I, we were counting it is averaging roughly two or three papers um, every week for the past 10 years um, with alternative theories of what could be causing this. And, uh, and they come with great names for these theories. Um, I, I love big rip cosmologies and ekkarotic universe you can barely pronounce. But the interesting thing is that if you ask these theories, almost none of it, well, none of them, I, as far as I know, would say they know what the answer is. They would say, no, they're just opening up possibilities. And they're turning back to us, the experimentalists, and asking, you know, can you uh, come up with uh, some explanation of, of what's going on? So that brings us to where we are today. <laughs> and, uh, and fortunately, this quote isn't really true. Um, here at Berkeley Lab, we've actually all been working very hard to do something about this for you. And, uh, and the, there are a number of things we can do. I, 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 you know, I've got to tell you a little later more about um, the work we've been doing trying to improve that supernova measurement. And, uh, and that actually, we can do a lot more to try and make a much, much more precise measurement. It, you need to, uh, to, instead of telling apart universes accelerating from decelerating, now you need to tell apart universes that have very slight differences of the history of the acceleration and, the, and its change from what used to be deceleration to current acceleration, if you're going to understand whether it is a dark energy or a change in gravity. Um, but the good news is that we've also, um, as, as uh, scientists, developed new approaches to this measurement beyond supernova. So I'm going to now turn the, uh, the, the uh, lecture over to my colleagues who will tell, well, David will talk about the, uh, the next one in line uh, that we developed, which was the gravitational weak lensing approach. Um, and, uh, and I think it's the combination of these that it's going to be, that's going to make, well, makes us feel excited that we have a possibility of getting at this bizarre mystery. Okay. All right, so I guess I, I should start here with, uh, bef before the program, we were actually talking about H1N1 quite a bit. <laughs> and uh, uh, let's assume that statistically, we should all make it through H1N1. So <laughs> won't worry about that too much. But then uh, if you talk about the very uh, distant future, Right, we still don't know what's going to happen. And so for those of you who want to live forever in the audience, then you know who you are. <laughs> so some bad things will happen. The sun will go red giant in four and a half billion years, and other bad things will happen. But then eventually, you know, in 100 billion years or a trillion years, what's the universe going to look like? And that, that's what we really don't know at all. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about uh, a project that I've been working on for the, for the past 10 years called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And this was a project, so this predates our discovery of this acceleration of the universe. Uh, this was when we just thought there was dark matter dominating the universe, which is another thing we don't understand that Alexi's going to tell us more about. Um, but uh, this was the first time that we were actually making a digital map of the sky. So up until this time, believe it or not, if you wanted to look at the best data we had for just a map of the universe, the, uh, the whole sky, the best you could do, well, you could go on campus, there was a copy of uh, these photographic plates taken in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and that's what there was. So with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, this is where we actually applied something modern technology. Let's actually uh, get some good maps of the sky. And the reason to do this at the time actually had nothing to do with dark energy. Um, but what we did was we started by just take, uh, taking pictures of the sky in a number of different filters. Uh, and this has actually been uploaded now into Google Sky. And so if this animation, I'll see if this animation goes. If this animation goes, this is actually, if you, if you go to Google Earth, 
you can actually get the Google Sky plugin where instead of looking down, uh, you're suddenly looking up. Um, and this is uh, a lot of data from, from this project that we did. Okay, so this is just our two-dimensional view of take pictures of the sky. So that's an interesting thing to do. Um, but what we really wanted to do was get a three-dimensional map of the sky. And so I'll, I'll get to why we care about a three-dimensional map. Um, but we were doing that with the same telescope. Uh, so this is a dedicated telescope for just mapping the universe. And the way that we get a three-dimensional picture of the sky is every galaxy that we're seeing on those pictures, you know, we get a picture of it, we don't know how far away it is. Uh, but so then what we have to do is go back and get a spectrum of it. And I'm not going to go into the details of that, except to say the way to do it uh, is to uh, uh, pick off the light to each and every one of those galaxies. Um, then we send it down through optical fibers onto CCDs and, and split the light. And so, so I did bring up, I'll show my one prop that I brought. Uh, so we actually bolt these things on the back of the telescope, and gosh, I hope we don't need this one tonight. Um, but you can't see it. There are lots of little holes in the center here, and each little hole is actually drilled very, very precisely to the position of a galaxy that we saw in our images. Uh, and then we have a guy, uh, uh, Norm, who actually he used to clean our toilets, but then we gave him a raise. Um, and now he plugs uh, optical fibers into these holes, and then it goes down to our spectrographs. I, I kid not. He's done a very good job. I should show a picture of, of Norm. Wasn't him? That, that wasn't Norm. I, I have to get a new picture. That's a wide shot of him. Yeah. <laughs> okay, from that, then we're actually able to construct a three-dimensional view of the universe. And so... Everyone here has probably seen Star Trek, whatever. You see lots of uh, uh, pretty movies of the universe. There's something different about this one, which is this is your universe. This is all real data. Uh, and I have to really remind, even when I give talks to professional physicists or astronomers, you know, they're used to showing simulations of what the universe looks like. But this is it. This is the real sky. So this, I claim this one is more important than those other ones. Uh, and so what we've done is we've created this three-dimensional map with uh, it's more than a million galaxies at this point. Uh, and one of the things that your eye can pick out here is you can actually see there are structures. Um, uh, they're not randomly placed on the sky, but, but the universe actually forms lots of structures. Okay. okay, so from here on in, I'm just showing more real data. Okay, the reason that we care about making these maps of the sky, well, one of the reasons we care now today is we can... Uh, what we've found in it is something that we can use as a standard ruler to measure the history of what the universe has done. So Saul was just talking about something that, so he was calling it a standard candle, which is something that we know what it looks like at different distances. We know how bright it should be. We have something else where we know how long it should be. And what this is, is these are sound waves from, from the early universe that actually get imprinted everywhere in the universe. So this is, an, if you go to the very early universe, you can compute from first principles of physics, just you know your second grade physics, right? Where uh, you have this hot plasma, and uh, the speed of sound is the speed of light over square root of three. You, you remember all that from second grade, uh, and it travels to a certain point, and this creates uh, these features on on the sky. And this is a map of the universe as it was 
when the universe was exactly 380,000 years old. So I don't have time to explain this, but I'll say this is real. I got the Nobel Prize in 2006, so you know we're not just kidding you. Um, so we see features there. And then on the right, again, this is more real data. This is a slice through that movie that I was showing you of the distribution of galaxies. So each point on there is one of these galaxies, like the Milky Way. And in that, we can see the same features on the left map, so from the very early universe, imprinted on the universe as we see it today. And this is what we're using as our ruler. Now, I should point out, it's a big ruler, so it's a little bit inconveniently long. It's, it's actually, it's uh, how long it takes light to travel in 500 million years. Um, which means we didn't actually have any maps of the universe large enough to even contain one ruler until very recently. But now we can do that. So, uh, so now that's what we're doing. Okay, so then looking at the history of the universe, uh, so the Big Bang is in the upper left here. Don't look directly at it. Very bright. <laughs> uh, but what I want to show here is that, uh, so this is the evolution of the expansion of the universe. And we really don't understand a lot of this right now. And so something that Saul didn't mention is, there was an uh, epic in the very early universe where we think it was actually expanding much, much faster than the speed of light. And so this is what we call inflation, not to be confused with other kinds of inflation. But we believe that that happened when the universe was only a, a small fraction of, uh, of a second old. Um, then we went on to the more traditional expansion of the universe for about uh, six or eight billion years. Uh, and during that time, what we had was the force of, of gravity slowing down that expansion of the history of, of the universe. And then the surprise discovery that Saul made that I didn't believe for a bunch of years, but now I believe him, was that then it started accelerating. Um, and so this is an, another period of acceleration, and uh, that's what we're calling dark energy. Okay, so I think I'm done there. Great, thanks, David. Thank you. It's really good to be here, and I just wanted to thank everyone for joining us tonight. I'm going to be talking about gravitational lensing. And um, Saul and David have told us all about dark energy. I'm going to talk about another mysterious component of the universe, which is called dark matter. And the evidence for dark matter goes back to 1933, where Fritz Zwicky, who is this nice-looking gentleman on the left here, studied the motions of galaxies within giant clusters. On the right-hand side, we have a giant cluster of galaxies composed of thousands of galaxies. And the speed at which these galaxies move around is directly proportional to the total mass of this structure. And he looked at the speed of these galaxies and calculated the total mass. And then he compared that to the mass that would be seen through the luminosity, through the light. And he concluded that there was about 160 times more mass than you could see. And he coined the word dark matter and concluded that there was a large amount of matter that was unseen, that was very mysterious. Now, unfortunately, his ideas were not taken very seriously at the time. And part of the reason, <laughs> part of the reason was probably that he was quite an abrasive character. And he was uh, well known for statements like, astronomers are spherical bastards. And no matter how you look at them, they're just bastards. And uh, he was also famous for saying things like, my colleagues are scatterbrains, psychophants, and thieves. I'm not talking about you. This is Prince McKee's uh, statement. 
So the student makers theory is very popular with astronomers at the time, maybe. So we had to wait until uh, 1970 when uh, Vera Rubin looked at spiral galaxies to see another evidence for dark matter. So what Vera Rubin did is studied the motions of stars as they circle around the spiral galaxy. And what she found is that the stars were moving much too fast compared to the starlight that you can see. And again, she concluded that there was a large amount of matter that could not be seen. So she again brought up the hypothesis of dark matter. So what is dark matter? Well, we think that it's probably a type of particle. Now, at this point, I'd just like to make a distinction here because uh, we've talked about dark energy and dark matter. They're two very different phenomena. Dark energy is responsible for the acceleration of our recent, uh, the recent acceleration of our universe, and dark matter is probably a type of particle. Uh, we just have similar names for them because we like dark things in astronomy. <laughs> um, dark matter has yet to be detected. We haven't detected an actual dark matter particle. It has two very important characteristics. The first is that it does not interact with light, so it does not emit and it does not absorb light, and it interacts only through gravity. So how do we study dark matter? Well, one of the primary mechanisms we have for studying it is through its uh, gravitational effects, and this is what I'm going to be talking about. This is maybe what your universe looks like on extremely large scales. This is not a real universe like David is showing us, but this is a simulation. It's called the Millennium Simulation. And this is what the dark matter structure of our universe looks like on extremely large scales. So this uh, scale up here is about a gigaparsec uh, in length, and that is about 310 to the 12 light years. So it's extremely, it's extremely large. And this is a simulation. It's actually relatively easy to make simulations of the universe when we only consider the dark matter, because dark matter only interacts through gravity. So it's very easy to simulate. Um, now, if this works, I'm going to take you on a little flying tour of our universe. Here we go. So on very large scales, we think the universe is very smooth and homogeneous. But as we zoom in to smaller and smaller structures, you're going to see that it starts to become very clumpy. And it forms giant clumps that we call dark matter halos. They're massive structures of dark matter. And these dark matter halos are connected by these filaments. And we call this whole ensemble the cosmic web, comprised mainly of dark matter. Now, where does the normal matter lie, the stuff that you're used to, this normal matter, lies at the center of these giant clumps of dark matter. So typically, this structure here would be a giant cluster of galaxies like the cluster I showed you in my first slide, and it would contain thousands and thousands of galaxies, and then maybe these small things out here would contain individual galaxies. So basically, the normal matter is resigned to, to stay within the gravitational scaffolding of the dark matter, because the dark matter makes up most of the mass in the universe. So galaxies form in these little pinpoints of light here. And uh, the reason that we have this filamentary structure is because the universe very, very early on was very homogeneous, but it had some small variations in its density. And eventually, as the universe evolved, uh, these structures began to collapse under their own gravity, forming these dark matter halos that we saw. So what is gravitational lensing? Well, I've showed you in the previous slide that the dark matter is clumpy. It forms these giant clumps of dark matter. 
The second piece of information is that we know that Einstein's theory of general relativity tells us that mass can warp space-time. So this is an image of some very massive object and it's warping space-time around it. And a result, as a result of this, the light that travels from a distant galaxy follows the curved lines of space-time and its trajectory is also curved. And this is gravitational lensing. So as a, as a consequence of this effect, if we have a big giant dark matter clump here and a dark matter clump here, the light from a distant gal galaxy will not necessarily travel in a straight line. Instead, it will come towards us following some curved path. And this is exactly what we call gravitational lensing. And this tells us about uh, dark matter, but we can also use it to study dark energy. So I also have my little props here uh, that I brought with me today. Uh, I have my standard candle. <laughs> so. Made out of whale blubber? <laughs> no, I couldn't say that in Berkeley. <laughs> um, and I, I'm also French by nationality, so I always have a wine glass handy just in case. Uh, you never know, so I'm carrying my wine glass with me. And I'm going to use this wine glass to demonstrate a very easy optical analogy of a gravitational lens. And you can also try this at home over a candlelight dinner. Uh, if the conversation's getting very boring, <laughs> you can demonstrate how well you know gravitational lensing. Uh, let me get this to go. So basically, the idea behind gravitational lensing is that you're looking at the light traveling towards us from a distant source. So in my analogy, the candle is a distant galaxy, and I'm an astronomer on Earth looking at this distant galaxy through my telescope. And in between us, there's a giant clump of dark matter, uh, which acts as a gravitational lens. In my analogy here, we're looking through an optical lens, which is you know, basically a, a wine glass can, can be an optical lens. And as I look towards this distant galaxy here, I'm actually seeing, I don't see the flame, the candle flame as one single entity. Instead, I can begin to see arcs and features like rings. Now, I can't show you this, but you can try this at home. And so going back to my analogy, this is the light traveling from a distant galaxy. Uh, and we see features like rings and arcs instead because the light has been deviated through the medium, through the lens. And this, on the left-hand side, is actually a real image taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. The central bright yellow clump is a galaxy. This is not a, a spiral galaxy that you're used to seeing like. It's more like a, a rugby ball galaxy. And the blue features are, uh, is a real galaxy that's situated behind the first galaxy. And you're seeing these arcs and uh, spherical features that you can also see in the wine glass. So this is gravitational lensing. So what do I do for a living? I basically study galaxy shapes. And uh, this is just a little illustration uh, to, to get you to understand gravitational lensing a little more. If we could make a wallpaper of galaxies and place a giant clump of dark matter in the foreground, that's exactly what we would see. We would see, if we could move this wallpaper, we would see that the shapes of the galaxies are distorted in this spherical pattern. We see a ring and we see arcs and all this, these shapes are distorted. Mm -hmm. And by studying this effect and the amount of distortion here, we can say something very precisely about the amount of mass that is located in the foreground. This is a giant galaxy cluster called the Abel 2218 galaxy cluster. And it, it's composed of thousands of galaxies. And the mass contained within this cluster is so extremely massive 
that it creates a gravitational lensing effect here, and you see these arcs of light that are distant galaxies which have their shapes highly distorted. By studying the position and the amount of stretching of these distant galaxies, we can measure very precisely the amount of mass here. And surprise, uh, there is much more mass than you can actually see in the light. So most of this cluster is actually made out of dark matter. And the light that you see is only a very small component. This is a, uh, another op optical analogy. This is one of the most famous results from gravitational lensing concerning the evidence for dark matter. This is called the bullet cluster. And in order to understand this result, you need to know uh, two facts. The first fact, you need, the first fact that you need to know is that a cluster of galaxies contains two visible components. It contains galaxies, these little yellow golden blobs, and it contains hot gas. And this hot gas emits x-rays, so we can detect it. The second fact that you need to know is that the hot gas is actually a lot more massive than the, than the galaxies are. So that's where most of the mass lies. Now, this system is very intriguing because it's actually two clusters of galaxies that have collided through each other. It's a giant cosmic collision. And when we look at the different components, these are the galaxies. We basically see that the galaxies have passed through each other during the collision. And the reason for this is that there's actually so much space between the galaxies that they almost never bump into each other. They just go right through. However, when we study this system through gravitational lensing, we can demonstrate that most of the mass is located at these blue peaks here. That's where the mass is located. However, when we look at this in x-rays, so we're looking at the hot gas component, what we see is that the gas has slowed down as the two clusters collided because the gas interacts electromagnetically. And it's slowed down, and it's even formed a beautiful shock wave, a shock front here. So what is this telling us? Well, this is telling us something very exciting. And you have to remember the second fact that I told you, which is that most of the visible mass is located, is, is, is the hot gas. What the lensing is telling us is that that's not true. Most of the mass is located uh, around the, the galaxies here. That's where most of the mass is. And we learned two things from this. One, there's a lot of mass that is unseen. We don't see it. And secondly, it doesn't interact with normal matter. Had it interacted with normal matter, it would have stopped and been slowed down here. So those are two pieces of very important information regarding dark matter. This is a, another exciting result from gravitational lensing that comes to us from the Cosmos survey, which is a very large survey done with the Hubble Space Telescope. And the size of this image is about nine times the area of the full moon. What we, what we have done with this uh, survey is study the shapes of more than a million galaxies and studied their average shapes and distortion patterns to reconstruct the entire dark matter along the line of sight. And this dark matter distribution is shown by these white contours here. And what we're seeing is that the observations are telling us that it looks very similar to what we think it should look like. We have giant clumps interconnected by these large filaments. This is basically we're trying to look at the cosmic web that I showed you earlier in that giant pink sponge-like simulation. And there's another second thing that's interesting here is that we can compare the location of the stars and the galaxies and this hot gas that emits in x-rays. And we find that all the normal matter, this is all normal matter, is located within the dark matter scaffolding. So this is, again, a nice uh, 
demonstration that we know something about the universe, <laughs> or we think we do, the normal matter is confined to lie within the gravitational potential wells that are defined by the dark matter. Uh, so where do we go from here? Well, there's a couple of experiments that maybe we could talk about afterwards that Berkeley Lab is involved in that have to do with measuring weak cleansing more precisely, uh, with measuring baryonic acoustic oscillations more precisely, and also supernova, so that we can learn more about both dark matter and dark energy. Wow, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to ask folks, if you have questions, uh, go ahead and start lining up. I got a couple of questions first because this could go right over my head. But um, if you, there are microphones at both sides and up above as well. Uh, the first question I have, Alexi, is uh, you said that the, the dark matter doesn't interact with normal matter. Does it interact with itself? In other words, does the dark matter bump into itself as well? It, it could do. Now, just like dark energy, we have many, many theories for dark matter. Um, and there's no leading theory right now. There are lots and lots of different, there's a whole zoo of different particles that are dark matter candidates. Um, some of these particles could interact with each other. In some cases, they could be their own, um, it, it could be its own antimatter particle, in which case, if it did hit each other, it would actually annihilate and turn into gamma rays or something that we could observe. But that's just one candidate among many other candidates. Now, have you seen that? For instance, in the bullet uh, cluster, uh, here you have these, these two large uh, volumes of gas and stars merging into one another. Do you see the evidence of dark matter maybe annihilating we can't, itself? Yeah, that's something that's extremely far away, so we can't study that, something that's that far away, but we are looking for this annihilation signal at the center of our own galaxy because the center of our own galaxy would be where the dark matter would be most dense and so that's where the probability that two dark matter particles would collide would be the highest and so we have telescopes pointed in that direction looking for such a signal. Cool. Uh, is there a question? That, uh, yes, sir. Please. So this uh, is directed mostly at Saul but anyone can, uh, can feel free to answer. Um, so for me, just... Um, you know, uh, intuitively or whatever, the idea that, that the universe may be sort of expanding and then that expansion might slow and, and then can contract into the, the big crunch or I think a gnab gib is what Douglas Adams called it. Um, that idea is, is kind of cool because, you know, maybe the universe could be like a spring and just sort of expand and contract and that gets rid of all sorts of philosophical questions. So for me personally, I think that would be cool to see. I know scientifically that's, that's not what the data shows us, but um, for any of you, as, not as scientists, but as people, um, do you have sort of, you know, fates or stories that you would, you would like to, to hear about or, or, or learn about through, through the data? You know, uh, I, I know that it's not a scientific question, but just any, anything that, that sort of inspires you. I can take a cut out of it. I was going to say that the, you know, I think that these oscillating uh, you know, or cycling, cyclic universes um, are not ruled out either right now it's, um, because um, there are ways in which you can get a universe that would look like the current universe that came from a previous um, in, in, you know, contraction and expansion. There's a, there's a very nice, uh, fun one that's, uh, that's being worked on of that kind at the moment. Um, for, for me, the funny thing is that I remember at one point, you know, people would ask, uh, well, which would you rather, a universe that, you know, would collapse? You know, which, did you like the feel or the one that would expand forever? And I found myself thinking, well, I don't know. You know, they both sound 
kind of bleak. You know, one's you know sort of empty and cold and bleak, and the other is other you know hot and fiery and you know and and uh, scary. You know, and so right. So I'm not sure any of the long-term prospects sound great by themselves. Um, on, on, on the other hand, I would say that um, there's some of the theories that are much more fun to think about, and it would be great if it turned out the universe worked that way. But as an experimentalist, we have to you know we, we I have to keep saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to play favorites. You know, I'm going to uh, let, let it go. Personally, I think it would be wonderful if it turned out like, that it was one of the extra dimension uh, theories. I, I think that would be a, a really fun one if it, if it turned out that really um, you know, what's going on is that um, gravity is leaking out into some other dimension, and, the, uh, and we're not, which we're not ordinarily aware of, except we've now discovered it because of the, uh, of the acceleration. Um, but uh, I, also, I also enjoy some of these, these oscillating ones, too, for some of the reasons you're describing, because you can imagine something which has sort of an eternal uh, existence and, uh, and sort of gets rid of you know, worrying about beginnings. You're looking at things that are very, very, very far away, and the signals are pretty faint. How sure are you seeing what you think you're seeing? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just say that uh, when Saul's results came out as, as far as the accelerating the universe, um, most of us didn't believe it at all. Uh, and one of the reasons we didn't believe it was uh, the the signal that he saw was that all these very distant objects were a little bit fainter than what they should have been. And so if something's a little bit fainter, it's easier to invent, oh, maybe there's just something going on out there. Maybe there's just a little bit of gas or dust, dust. between us and, and these distant galaxies. Uh, so that, that was a lot of initial skepticism. But now we've actually come at the problem from different angles, and we know how careful Saul was in the first place, so now we actually believe it. Thanks. Uh, was there a second I, question? I have a comment uh, yes. for Dr. Saul and Alexis. Uh, I, I, I think uh, what you're alluding to is, is a mere reflection of, of matter in, in the uh, exploded realm, and so that what you perceive as dark matter being an acceleration is, is actually the, the photonic reflection of matter exploding unto itself. And so you, you have a situation here where uh, we haven't yet detected the, the particular or dark energy. So uh, my question would be, uh, will we need a chilled argon detector or a, a gravimeter uh, in, in orbit to uh, detect this type of energy? Can I, can I say something about this? So. Um, I just wanted to clarify one thing in that the dark matter and the dark energy, as, as far as we know and the way we're thinking about it right now, are probably two very separate things. And actually, they, the dark matter does not cause the acceleration of the universe. In fact, it would be the opposite. The dark matter it has a mass. Therefore, it has gravity. And had we no dark energy, it would contribute to making the, the universe contract, maybe back to a big crunch model. Dark energy is the opposite. It's a form of negative pressure. It makes the universe accelerate in its expansion. So they actually have competing effects. They're Could you call it singular energy? Saul? <laughs> so you, you asked him, could you call it singular energy? Singular, yes. From, yeah. from black hole singularity. Oh. Oh, uh, is yeah. dark matter black holes? Is that, would that be the question? Is well, inversion? Yeah. The, there, there are some ideas that dark matter could be formed from very uh, small black holes that were created very early on in the universe. They'd be called primordial black holes. 
But since then, uh, Stephen Hawking came up with a brilliant idea of how to kill black holes, and basically they can lose energy and they can eventually disappear through a process called Hawking radiation. So it's unclear whether any of these tiny black holes would actually exist today anymore, and we haven't seen any. So I would say it's not a leading theory right now. So uh, my question, I, I kind of I watch a lot of science shows, really, but I, I noticed on one of the shows that I watched that there's kind of like a speed limit, the speed of light is in the universe. And I noticed that one of the slides in the beginning, uh, you mentioned that one of the ways that you guys might have to you know, resolve this issue is to kind of modify Einstein's theories. And I mean, from what I see or from what I hear, he's kind of like, you know, his general theory of revolution or, or, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the Bible as far as you guys are concerned. So more than anything, I'm just kind of curious if you guys see that more as a hindrance when you're, when you're trying to think of, you know, stuff as, you know, outside of the box. I know you guys can't go away from that really. How does that really work with, with what you're doing? Well, well, we should point out that I guess maybe this kind of uh, situation is one where you want to preserve all the good parts of, of Einstein's theory of relativity. I mean, it's been amazingly successful at explaining all sorts of things that we could never otherwise explain. So anything we do to modify gravity has to keep most of the theory intact, because um, so, we know most of it really works very, very well. The modifications that people are trying out are ones where they, would, they wouldn't affect things, for example, on small scales, but just on very, very large scales. And so that's one thing that you could potentially look for in the kind of work that Alexei's um, doing. Yeah, gravitational lensing could be sensitive to the effects of modifying gravity on very large scales, and I think that's something that's really exciting. It's something that we've only barely started to study now, and you know, something that's extremely difficult to study, but this technique does have the potential of looking at that, at that kind of question. Most of the theories that I've seen people trying out don't yet work. They're not completely consistent, um, self-consistent, and so I don't think the theorists yet feel like they have a good alternative to Einstein's theory. But I, I will say the ones they've been trying out tend not to change the speed of light um, as, a, as a speed limit um, still. So that tends to still exist in these, in these theories that they're working on so far. Well, one of the things that Einstein talked about, or at least people who worked on his theory have, have uh, discussed, is gravity waves. Uh, what's up with them? How come we haven't found a gravity wave yet? Well, gravity waves are extremely difficult to detect. We're building detectors to, to look at this effect, and there's actually some people in the audience up here that study gravity waves uh, up on the second balcony there. And I'm just going to repeat to you what he's told me, but uh, we have these instruments called LIGO and Advanced LIGO that are trying to detect a gravity wave, and the precision that you need is extremely high, so you would you'd be shooting light out for kilometers and having it come back to you, and you'd try to detect kind of a movement in space that would be of the order of an atom. Or the, the nucleus of an atom. The nucleus of an atom. So it's difficult. <laughs> it's a difficult job. We're working on it. Yeah, I think if we had detected that by now, well, that would be pretty amazing. Yes, it would, it would be amazing. There are other ways to study it, looking at pulsars. Um, but it's extremely hard, so we don't have any results there yet. Uh, another question down here. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, thanks for this great presentation. Um, I was reading a new scientist actually just today, 
And there's a very interesting article that I, I would like to ask a question about. And this kind of, maybe this is for Alexi, this goes to, you were talking about this Cosmos uh, survey that yes. uh, I believe Hubble was doing. And uh, there's a researcher uh, who's Rachel Bean. Rachel Bean, yeah. And um, the, the idea here, and this goes back to the gentleman above who was asking about Einstein's theory of relativity. And apparently, maybe uh, it says here that, that some time in the past, Okay, relativity is supposed to, I say, I think, no, mass is supposed to warp both space and time equally. Now, I don't really understand that per se, but um, that this lady found, she found that between 8 and 11 billion years ago, gravity's distortion of time appeared to be three times as strong as its ability to curve space. Can You're you in luck. This lady knows a lot about that. I'm really glad you asked that question. <laughs> I, I knew someone was going to ask this question. Um, this result is based on the data set that I'm working with for the last maybe seven to eight years now, the Cosmos survey, which is that large survey with the Hubble Space Telescope. And one thing that we've looked at is we study the weak lensing signal, uh, sorry, the lensing signal, and we look at it as a function of distance uh, or as a function of um, time. And we, we've, we've studied how that signal varies uh, from now until half the age of the universe. And what Rachel Bean, so Rachel Bean is the person who published this paper recently, has looked at this data and found that you could explain some of the discrepancy by introducing a form of modified, modified gravity on very large scales. And having worked with the data, I need to, I need to issue an, uh, a note of caution here. And the reason for this is that the, the data, the paper that she published is based on results we published about in 2007, so a couple of years back already. And since then, we've been working on um, new, new versions of our data set and especially the key thing that we've been looking into. So David has told us about how we can image galaxies in the sky, but we don't know how far away they are. And we've been working into figuring out to higher precision how far away they are. And this actually makes a difference for the type of study that, that she's published. So we're hoping to publish a new result within the next couple of months to see whether or not this signal persists. And I think it's a very exciting field. I think this is a really exciting question to be addressing. But you have to realize that these are extremely difficult techniques. And we're just starting to scrape the surface here and to try and measure these kind of things. So come back in a few months and ask us about it. Oh, good. We'll have breaking news. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, sir. Please. I have a question for Alexi. Um, if we assume that these clumps of dark matter are randomly distributed around the universe and that uh, they distort starlight in a sort of a zigzag pattern, a random pattern, not even a pattern, a random path, um, how can we tell where anything really is out there, A, and more importantly, how can we tell the distance because we're not looking at a straight line uh, path of light? Yeah, so that animation I showed you had a, lots of squiggles. Uh, most of the time, the light will only encounter maybe one giant blob. And if we look around this one giant blob, first of all, there are very distinctive effects that we can recognize those arcs. Those are very distinctive, and we can use those to study the mass. Now, what also happens is that if you take a, a giant blob of dark matter, you can also study it a lot further out from the center. And you'll have these very small distortions of the shapes of galaxies into a circular pattern. And most of the light that travels from that distant galaxy will actually only be deviated by that one massive structure. 
If the uh, universe is expanding on a cosmological scale, does that also mean that it's expanding on a microscopic scale? Are the distances between the atoms and molecules getting bigger, and are the atoms and molecules themselves expanding? Generally, no. Uh, let's I mean, it would be the case, except for the fact that the um, energies of gravity that are pulling things together uh, are much, much more important than this expansion, repulsive uh, energy um, due to a hypothetical dark, dark energy. So the current understanding is that almost anything that's bound uh, in some system, uh, you know, electrons to their to their protons in an atom, uh, stars to their galaxies. Um, those things, the the uh, binding energy is much much more important than the amount of energy you get from the dark energy that's in that system. So uh, in, in, at that at those scales, um, they, there is is no real impact that we know of at this at this point. Are we sure? Because because our rulers will be getting bigger too, right? I mean. <laughs> Well, the, the, I mean, obviously, many of these things you have to do based on the, your simplest hypotheses. And so you begin with, you know, what do you think is the simplest picture of the universe that we live in? And then you try and modify it slightly um, and to see whether you can explain what you get. Now, you know, someday you may get forced to a position where you realize that's actually a rather dramatic explanation that you're going to need to explain something. So far, we don't think that's the case in these respects. And, that we, had, and we have very precise measurements of behaviors of things on small scales and solar system scales. Um, which suggests that those parts of the story are fairly well covered by current theory. <laughs> is it possible to have two galaxies combine? It is, and two galaxies actually do collide sometimes, and that's how we think we form massive galaxies. And there are people out here that study that uh, up on the other upper balcony again. But um, it, it's fairly rare because in 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 a cluster of galaxies, for example, the distance between each galaxy is quite large. So usually they would just zip around and spin around without ever hitting each other. But because there's a huge amount of dark matter, they're all attracted to the center and eventually they collide. And we we have beautiful images of colliding galaxies where you see giant tidal tails coming up and uh, they certainly do. It's a really interesting process to study. And, and we should warn you that our nearest galaxy, neighbor galaxy, if you look in the Andromeda constellation, the Andromeda galaxy, we are going to hit it. It'll be a little while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, la- ladies and gentlemen, we, we do have to stop. Unfortunately, time is, time is uh, drawing nigh. I, I want to greatly appreciate your attendance here, and please let's give a warm round of applause for our presenters. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.